Our Father, we've just sung of how blind we are and how easily we run after things that are no gods at all, how easily we get duped, how easily we wander and our hearts stray. And so we pray as we come to listen to you afresh in your word, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that we might, we might have life as we listen afresh to the God of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you find this, but I find there's a danger, a danger of going through life with a heart like Teflon. Do you know what I mean? The, the temptation to avoid pain and to protect ourselves. So essentially, we, we sort of coat ourselves in a non-stick material and nothing really affects us. Nothing really penetrates and gets in there. C.S. Lewis famously put it like this, and I know I've quoted him before on this, but it's a great quote. He says, he says, Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, ir irredeemable. And I guess while that might be a legitimate tactic for self-preservation, maybe it's a very common one. Maybe you see it in yourself. I take it it's not a particularly a Christian one. It's not one for members of Christ's kingdom. Because Jesus says in our little verse for today, we're simply in 5 verse 4, he says it's okay to mourn. He says we're not to be like those who aren't affected by the reality of life. The reality of the pain of others. In fact, it's more than that. He, he describes what members of his kingdom looks like, and he seems to say that mourning is a necessity even. It's something we should expect. There's something for you if you are a Christian here this morning. But before we jump in, do you remember the story so far? Let me give you a bit of a, a background on the last couple of weeks and quite what's going on in these, these Beatitudes, this Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, where we are over the summer, and try and catch you up or remind you. Um, the story so far, if you remember, is that the king has come. God's king has come, the promised one who would come and put the world together again, who would make it right. And Matthew has shown us in the first few chapters, as he's ticked prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, this is the king. He's here. The waiting is over. And then Matthew literally says in 5 verse 1, and then 5 verse 2, that Jesus opens his mouth. In our version it says he began to teach them, but literally it's he opens his mouth. I know some of you have got other versions of the Bible, you've got ESVs and perhaps more um, literal translations. Why does Matthew put it like that? Just flick back a page with me. I think it's very deliberate. And again, he's giving us a wink as he does this to say this is someone you need to listen to. So 4, four verse 1 on the previous page let me read them to us. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but, and get this, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So do you see why Matthew puts it this way? As Jesus sits down and opens his mouth, he's saying, here are some words from the very mouth of God for you. Listen. Jesus comes and he's not like any other teacher, giving us his take on the world or his ideas about life. Take it or leave it, see if it works for you. That doesn't work with Jesus. He is extraordinary and unique. Here is a man who is divine. Here is God speaking, God's king, bringing God's words to God's kingdom. Here is God himself opening his mouth. And it's as if Matthew is saying, you can't just take it or leave it. These are God's words. And as Woody was teaching the kids, what what does blessed mean? Well, it, it sort of means happy. It's where the Incidentally, it's where the beatitude word comes from. That's the Latin word for happy. But it's not quite the way we use happy today often. It's more an objective reality put upon somebody. These people are happy rather than I feel happy. To be blessed is to be favoured by God, to be smiled upon, to be living life as God intended them to live. And remember we said as well, these descriptions of these blessed people, 3 through to 11, are not, we said, eight different individuals that Jesus is pointing to. But it's more as if he's describing one person, different angles on one person, on people in his kingdom, a description of what a kingdom member looks like. And so we kicked it off last week, as Tom was teaching the kids, with poor in spirit, which we said was the bedrock upon which we must live. It's the countercultural idea that we need crutches, that we can't do it on our own that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we are completely unable, helpless, unworthy before God. We simply cannot help ourselves. And that is why it comes first, because that is the foundation. But then if that is the foundation, verse 3, then what comes next and why? I take it these beatitudes are not just random sayings but there is an order through them. There's a deliberate progression. One writer speaking of them says, our Lord does not place them in their respective positions haphazardly or accidentally. There is what we may describe as a spiritual logical sequence to be found here. It's a string of pearls, if you like. It's very deliberate, and we'll see that week by week. But he moves them from poor in spirit to blessed are those who mourn. Which sounds wrong, doesn't it? It sounds slightly masochistic. Blessed are the mourners. Happy are the unhappy. Jesus, do you have a pastoral bone in your body? What's going on? Well, let's start off in Isaiah 61. And if you could kind of take your fingers for a walk and find Isaiah 61, that'd be great. Let me give you a page number. If you have a Bible like me, the sort of crimsony ones, it's page 749 in these Bibles. And I I partly mention it because there's a passage we mentioned at the end of the Numbers series, so I'm trying to sort of tie things together for you. But particularly as well because it's 
a prophetic passage that speaks of mourning. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he's an, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, to relief from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. You see what Isaiah is doing? He's got binoculars pressed against his eyes, looking ahead to the time when the Lord will surely come and will bring hope. And will bring transformation, praise in the place of, in the place of mourning, a crown of beauty for those who grieve in Zion, the oil of joy instead of ashes. And so if we think about mourning in those kinds of terms... As we start this morning, it's almost a sort of corporate thing, a national thing, a societal mourning being spoken of, which I guess would be very relevant for the initial hearers. For the disciples and then from those listening in from afar as well, they were in mourning as a nation. They were mourning their current lot in life. They were desperately hoping for the Messiah to come, for God's King. To come and give them the inheritance that God had promised them. They were longing for a land where they could worship freely without interference. They were longing for a place they didn't have to pay tax in the first place. But also tax collectors don't come and steal their money corruptly. They were a people mourning. Together. I take it we may be in different terms slightly. But mourning as, as a people. The people of God, we switch on the gut-wrenching news day by day by day. Think of the ongoing fallout politically in the UK and beyond. Think of the multiple shootings this last week in America, race-related. Think of persecuted Christians all around the world. I take it it's okay to be a people who mourn. It's okay to mourn now. I perhaps explicitly need to say that for, for some of us with our stoic upbringings and British stiff upper lips, maybe we need to hear that. Maybe we need to actually believe that, that mourning is okay. Of course, there are all kinds of things that we might mourn. For them, it was seemingly their, their national situation, the the fact that God had promised them a land and that was unfulfilled. For some of us, it's the state of the English football team. That's been a constant source of pain and suffering for the past few weeks. It may be for us later as we watch Wimbledon or the football. But I suspect Jesus has in mind slightly different things as we consider mourning for this morning. Perhaps things of an eternal significance. I take it it's the outworking of Genesis 3 and beyond. It's the brokenness of the world. It's the effects of the fall of sin and of suffering and of death. That's the mourning he means. It's, an, it's a holy dissatisfaction with the state of the world. 
a world that's turned its back on God. A dissatisfaction with churches, with this church, with ourselves. It's mourning the brokenness of the world. One lovely phrase um, from the Book of Common Prayer, um, Thomas Cranmer, 1662, that picks up on this idea of personal mourning that I was struck by this week, personal mourning of our own sin. And it sounds a little archaic and the words are quite old. But he says this. He says that we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. It's striking, isn't it? That strength of pain of our own sin. Do we feel that? When did you last weep over your sin? You see, I I almost wonder if there's a genuine danger, and I say this carefully, but a danger of making so much of grace that we make little of sin. So if we just fast forward straight to the answer, do we begin to lose the strength of the question? If we simply zoom in on the good news, and do we lose the reason why it is such good news? And Jesus says to us, the world is broken. We're not meant to be a people who do not mourn. Sin and suffering and death are a reality and we're meant to feel the pain of them, the the hardship of them. As is often the case, when I get to preach on difficult things, the week beforehand is often very difficult. It's the way the Lord seems to do it. But I look back on my last week and think of friends and family who are suffering with significant health issues just these last few days. But Jesus says it's, it's okay to mourn. Mourning is to be expected. I want us to focus briefly, though, on mourning over death. Because clearly that is in mind as Jesus speaks here in 5 verse 4. Death is, if you like, the ultimate outworking of sin and suffering. Death is the the final goal as hearts stop beating and bodies die. And it's worth saying that there are some unhelpful strands of theology out there that seek to actively minimise this kind of mourning in some sense, overplaying the blessings of the kingdom now such that the pain of death is ignored or it's, it's downplayed. You get that in some prosperity theology churches and strands and books that are written, and overemphasis in the now such that the then is kind of ignored. But I take it it is right to mourn. We don't need to hide from that. The Bible story as it unfolds is painfully honest, and the reality of mourning, it's, it's unsanitized in an awkward way for us. We saw it in numbers. Do you remember the people mourning in the wilderness again and again and again, loved ones who die because they chose not to enter the promised land, to not, prom- not trust the Lord. We see it with Moses when he dies in Deuteronomy 34. The nation has 30 days of mourning. Everything stops for a month as they mourn. You see it with Jesus as he mourns at the grave of Lazarus, even though he knows he's going to raise him. You see it with Paul as he writes to the church in Romans, in Romans 12, and says we're to to mourn with those who mourn. It's at the church level. It's not a question of avoiding mourning. 
as if that were possible. We can't be the proverbial ostriches who stick our heads in the sand and pretend it's not there or it's going to go away quickly. No, it's as if we're together, we're to actively engage in mourning together. To allow ourselves to be affected. Because that's what families do. And so when one of us mourns, we all mourn. And yet we mourn differently as Christians. We have, we have a future hope and a comfort. The reason we can mourn well is because Jesus was raised again on the Sunday. It changes how we mourn and we grieve. Now, let me read to you as Paul um, writes to the church in Thessalonica. It's chapter 4 and 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. They were the verses I spoke on my dad's funeral. And I can tell you from experience, they don't take away the pain. They don't fill up the hole in your life, the gap in reality. They don't fill the gap at the Christmas dinner table. They don't fill the gap of him not being on the end of the phone again. But they bring such comfort because he was in Christ. And because the story doesn't end on the Friday. But Christ was raised again on the Sunday. And so we have a hope. And so death becomes like sleep. And the thing about sleep, most of us, is we wake up. Some of us are a bit more drowsy. But we wake up. And so parting is not forever. And so we grieve with hope. But it is okay to mourn. Maybe some of us need to hear that. Into at times what feels like a hopeless world, Jesus says it's okay to mourn. Why? Because you'll be comforted. Do you see, the promise for the Christian is that there will be comfort. And what is this comfort he speaks of? Just a couple of points to note before we jump into that. As we think about comfort, it is clearly a contrast to the world that says there is no future, there is no hope, there is no comfort. This is it. You die, you rot, game over. That's the majority narrative that we hear in the news. That's what scientific naturalism says. We die and we rot and that is it. But Jesus says, no, there is a hope, there is more to come. And the second thing to say in slightly longer terms, is that even though there is the main comfort to come for the future, I take it there is comfort now for the Christian. There is comfort for the believer. There is reality of blessing now in the darkness of life for the believer. So I don't know if you've ever bought diamonds, but as you go into the jewellers, as you go into the cloth, it's the, into the shop, it's the darkness of the cloth that shows the brightness of the jewels. You see the beauty in contrast to the darkness. Well, so despite the pain now, despite the mourning now, despite the suffering now, despite the reality of what you're going through now, perhaps you know something of the joy of the gospel, of God with you in the midst of it. So there is a comfort now for the believer. I take it Jesus is saying that there's just infinitely more to come. 
there will be a full and final and forever comfort. What is the comfort we receive now? Well, I want to take this as a theme and try and trace it through the Bible for you and show you where we sit in that sort of tracing. As you think through the comfort of God in in the Bible, it is very closely tied up with the presence of God himself. God comforts his people by being with his people. So when he speaks to the prophets, I'll give you a famous example from Isaiah 40 in a moment, but when he speaks to the prophets saying, God will come and comfort you, he's not promising them a dollop of comfort. He's promising them himself. So Isaiah 40 and verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. So God is promising them comfort. And it continues, but actually Matthew has already quoted from where it continues back in chapter 3 and verse 3. So it goes, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain made low. And the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together. So do you see, Isaiah says, comfort is coming, and there's going to be someone who prepares the way for that comfort. And we say, well, who's the person who's going to prepare the way for the comfort from the Lord? And Matthew says, it's John the Baptist. And we say, well, who's he preparing the way for? Who's going to bring this comfort? Matthew says, it's Jesus. He is the way the Lord is comforting his people. Here is the Lord coming himself to bring comfort to his people. We have comfort now in Christ. Or or as Jesus leaves them after the cross. Do you remember? He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And how does he describe the Holy Spirit whom he will send? John 16, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, counsellor, comforter to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world can't accept him, but neither sees him nor knows him, but you will know him, for he lives with you. I won't leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So Jesus sends his spirit to be the one who brings comfort. We have comfort now in the Holy Spirit, by the presence of God. But even more than that, where else do we find comfort now? We find it from others. Have a listen to 2 Corinthians 1. Verses 3 to 5. See if you spot the comfort there. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Do you see, it's as if he's saying, don't just focus in on what you're going through. But think about the comfort you receive from the Lord and how he can then comfort others through you. Sharing around the comfort from God, receiving even the comfort from God from his people. Our God is the one who comforts his people in need. But Jesus says there is more comfort to come. There is more comfort to come. These things may be great, but there is so much more to come. The plan is not over. And so let me read again then from Revelation 21, if you like, the end of the comfort story as the Bible plots it for us. 
And you see the full and final presence of God bringing comfort. So Revelation 21 and verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Do you see how the presence of God and the comfort from God are completely intertwined? He is the one who will wipe away every tear. That is the Christian hope. No more death or mourning or crying or pain. When you switch on the 10 o'clock news, and it's only good news. When we don't have these bodies that break or that slow down or that die. Christians have a hope. Friends, we have a hope. And of course, for brothers and sisters around the world this morning, that is incredible news. And no doubt for some in this room, that is incredible news. As you look to the situation in the now and you look ahead to that hope and you long for it. And sometimes the Lord opens our eyes to to our need of that hope in painful ways. But I reckon the danger for a number of us, for many of us perhaps, is that we can be duped by the nowism of the now. That is, life can be pretty good now, actually. Frustrations and struggles in relative terms are minor. We look down church history or we look around the world and we sort of know there's a hope to come. But does it make much of a difference, really? Does hope really matter to, that, to us that much? How, how much would you say hope is a part of your present reality as a believer? I was struck the other day thinking about it with Paul talks about faith, hope and love. But I kind of wonder if the hope thing in the middle is a sort of neglected middle child. Do you find that? They're all a challenge, of course. We sort of know the difference that faith ought to make to us day by day, and we kind of know what, what love means. So we're to love each other and love him. But what about hope? Is hope actually on your radar? Does hope make a difference? Does the future reality of being comforted impact now? Do we really believe that that hope is coming? Does it change stuff? Does it change our hearts and our affections and our actions and our generosity, whatever it might be? Does hope really matter? I'm just not sure whether it makes a huge difference for me much of the time. But Jesus said he would be raised again, and he was, and he said he will return again, and he will. And so we have a hope. Maybe this week... Think about that hope, that idea. Think about how much of a difference it makes, if at all. How much of a comfort it is in the darkness, if at all. As we come to take the Lord's Supper in a moment, a little while, where we have a bread and wine, reminders of his, his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. So we see something of the, the fact that we mourn now. We see something of the fact that this world is broken and that we are broken and we need a saviour. 
But it's more than that as well, because as Paul puts it, it points ahead to the time when we won't need to be reminded anymore, when we will have the true banquet, the true presence of God forever. When we will know that true comfort forever. And so, Magdalen Road, if, if we're a people who mourn, if, if life for you at the moment is hard, and you feel that reality of post-Genesis 3, sin, suffering, death, crushing in on you, hear what Jesus says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And if you're one of those for whom life is kind of okay, and we sort of drift along and move from day to day and week to week and month to month, and it's all right, really, in relative terms, then perhaps reflect upon that hope that we have in Christ and how that impacts us now and changes life for us now. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you for your powerful words. Father, we pray for those who are mourning today. Mourning the, the outworking of the fall of Genesis 3 being played out again and again and again of, of sin, of suffering, of death, of hardship, of pain darkness and we pray that those who feel like that would know the certain hope and comfort that you promise we thank you for the comfort we receive now we thank you for your presence with us we thank you for your presence in the Lord um, in your Holy Spirit we thank you for one another the comfort that we receive from you from one another for one another and yet we look ahead to that time when we shall truly know your presence. When these broken and sinful bodies will be done away with forever. When we will be perfected into your likeness. And Father, where we easily get sucked into the, the now... Would you stretch us and shape us in our faith so that hope matters more and more to us that we know the future and that it would impact tomorrow and how we live in Jesus name we pray Amen